0: What does your application have going for it brand wise? It has a hideous icon that happens to include feet. And so f- following following that brand, like you're going through a rebranding effort, all you've got going for you is the fact that your icon had feet. And so getting a non-hideous icon that has feet, it's like like you're owning it. You're you're owning the feet.
1: So, but what if I don't really need to worry about brand recognition because only like three or 400 people have ever bought the damn thing in the first place.
0: It, does, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not like people are going there looking for the feet. That's what you got is feet. And you know, <laughs> I, I think being whimsical, like that was your instinct. That's what you brought to the application. You drew feet on that ter- terrible icon. You brought that, that came from you. That is your own personal creative input into the branding of this application. If you got some other creative input, put it in, but don't like, I wouldn't just throw that away. You wanted feet, you got feet. Hey, your app is basically UIKit plus (laughs) feet. Here's one from John Dark, spelled with an E at the end of Dark. That's a pretty awesome name, although he should really have an H in his first name. But anyway, uh, he brought up an interesting point that I didn't think of when we were talking about the Apple Lightning connector and the upcoming USB connector that we don't know anything about other than it's not going to suck and it will be bidirectional. Wait, we don't know it's not going to suck. Well, it still very much can suck. Yeah, I guess, I suppose. But they're saying all the right things about it. Uh, and when we talked about that, I was saying, like, it's hard to think of that connector being anything except for something like the lightning connector. Not exactly, but, you know, reverse with it, with the contacts on the outside and a solid metal thing instead of being like micro USB and mini USB, where it's like a little bent piece of metal with crap on the inside, because that is very delicate and annoying and crappy. And it it seems crazy to me that they would make a new connector and make it's like, it's like micro USB only now it's reversible. That's not really great, or that wouldn't be a very big improvement. But Marco's right, I suppose they could still do that. But anyway, this blog post says, okay, so say my speculation ends up being close to right, and they produce a connector that is in the style of the lightning connector, but isn't obviously not a lightning connector. And say that Apple eventually adopts that because it's a better connector than the current full-size USB, and they put it in all their products and all that stuff. You would end up with a cable like the one that's drawn in this blog post. Did you open the link yet? Uh, yeah, I, read, I actually read this post earlier. That cable would be kind of a nightmare, don't you agree? Because <laughs> it looks like lightning on one end and a made-up USB connector on the other that looks kind of like lightning, but not really. Like, it's a little bit thinner and the contacts are longer. And you lose all the advantages of the reversible cable, the new USB thing and everything, and you know consumers would have trouble figuring out which end is which because they look so similar. And you know, A regular nerd would be able to know every time, but maybe even we would mess it up if we're bleary-eyed in the morning trying to plug something in. So that's kind of like the, the curse of being first, where Apple came up with a lightning connector while all the USB guys kept screwing up their connectors and making their crappy things. And, you know, for a while now, we're like, you see, Apple's got these great connectors on their devices. And, of course, the big, fat, ugly other end that connects to your computer is you'd never get that confused with a lightning connector, right? But if the new USB connector looks something like lightning, Apple could find itself in a strange or uncomfortable situation. And I don't think they can go USB on both ends because of all this, you know, planning they have for the lightning connector and how it works with all their devices and how it lets them change the insides while keeping the the connector the same and all that good stuff. Well, first of all, I'm
2: guessing that the USB reversible... Uh, so this guy's calling it USB Type-C. Is, that, is that, Do we have... Is that an official name, the Type-C plug? Yeah, I think that's what they call it
0: in the, the
2: thing that he links from the... All right, good. So so we can call that. So if this, if this Type-C thing um, ends up coming out, being reversible and resembling lightning uh, in its general design, I would guess almost certainly it would be wider by, by a substantial amount. Um, to accommodate all the pins necessary to do USB 3.0 at a reasonable cost. Because the small, you know, the lightning connector has very, very tiny little contact pads, and, the, and then the port is required to have these little tiny pins. All that super miniaturization, I'm guessing, uh, might you know, run afoul of USB's desire to be super cheap and, and, uh, and to have pretty broad tolerances so that any idiot can make one of these connectors or ports and, and it'll work. Um, I'm guessing the connector would not be nearly as small as Lightning, and that alone would be a pretty big, uh, a b- pretty big switch. Also, let's think about realistically speaking here: like, how likely is it that the USB people are going to make a spec that's as good as Lightning to be actually easily confused with it? Like, I'm guessing it's going to be in some way clunkier. And I'd love to be proven wrong on that. I hope I am proven wrong on that, but I- I'm guessing, you know, looking at their history of how they how they do things and what they prioritize. I don't think what they make is going to end up being confusingly similar to lightning.
0: The Apple's easy out would be that no matter what the connector looks like, make the plastic grommet end thingy on the lightning connector just massive so that it's like the same size as the current USB connector on a lightning cable, except maybe it has a little dinky thing. So even if they made the connector exactly the same size, Apple, since it more or less controls the lightning connector market or the people who want to use lightning connectors, could dictate that the end that's not lightning has to be this big, fat, chunky thing.
2: I think also I, I'm pretty sure we can safely rule out the, um, the, the latter two possibilities uh, in John's blog post about um, either Apple basically killing lightning and adopting USB or Apple working together with the USB forum people to, uh, to, to make one better standard together. I, I think we can pretty safely rule those things out. as very, very unlikely
0: yeah Apple's I don't know what Apple's motivation would be to uh, standardize since they they love having their very own connector with their own particular attributes that they can license to accessory manufacturers and do all that good stuff. Exactly
2: because you know they, they do make a lot of money off those licensing fees and and I think I think more than the money I think the money's a secondary concern for them. Uh, I, I think the bigger reason they do it is control. You know they love having control over what their devices can and can't do. Uh, they love having control over what accessories can and can't do, how they interact with the device. And then I think they also like that if you make a lightning port device, it's not going to work on somebody's Android phone. You know, all of these things really benefit Apple, and there's there's really no motivation to change that.
0: And the, the best thing about it is... Uh... Finally, Apple has found a market and a position in that market where this lack of compatibility with the other guys does not hurt them. Because back in the day, it was like, well, real keyboards and mice use insert connector here, but Apple uses this crazy thing called ADB. And so you have to buy a special Apple keyboard. You can't just buy a regular keyboard, right? And Apple eventually adopted USB, and now more or less you can take a USB keyboard and connect it to either computer. So during the whole Mac PC era, the Mac was dinged on every single area where it didn't conform to the rest of the industry. Now in the portable device space and you know the iPod space, Apple so dominated the portable music player space that 30-pin became sort of the de facto standard. And now in the phone market, people might not buy an iPhone because it doesn't have a big enough screen or like so other things like that, but I don't think people are saying, well, I was going to get an iPhone, but it doesn't use USB. It uses this, this lightning connector type thing. People may still gripe about lightning connector and the cost of it, but it doesn't hurt them as much as I think all their... Special Apple-specific weirdness used to hurt, and this Apple always wanted to have its own weird thing. But it was the the negatives were not overwhelming, but kind of must have annoyed Apple. And now finally, they have a uh, you know in the portable device market a place where they can do their proprietary stuff and only take a minimal hit in the market for it, almost non-existent. You know, people will just grin and bear it.
1: You say that, though. But Gruber made a post about this. Uh, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago, about how the Lightning cable. I think it was talking about the lightning cable is, is is the epitome of the difference in perspective between Apple users and Android users. And I actually pointed this out. I sent this article to a bunch of my Android loving friends and they were like, yeah, that's stupid. Why would you want a proprietary cable? And man, it's just, to me, that makes no sense. Like I don't need to have a really clunky cable that I have 300 of. I'd rather have one cable that works very well all the time. And it—I don't know—it just—it struck me as so weird that 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 was leaving.
0: Uh, uh, that post was right about the difference between the users, but those are users who have already made their choice or who have some sort of like some allegiance to one side or the other. Regular people who have no allegiance to one side—they don't care or know anything's different about them, you know. And like they expect when you get a new thing, there will be new accessories that have to come with it. I don't know people—I don't know if people are like, well, if I can't reuse my charging cables, then forget it because. Across Android phones, maybe you can't reuse the same cables or the same chargers, so they don't work as well. It's it's not a it's not that big a deal. Besides, they come with you know one or two cables or whatever the iPhones come with these days. I, I think the experience of using the Lightning cable, like you said, Casey, for regular people, is more important than the theoretical advantage of being able to reuse cables across phones that you buy.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, we also got a lot of feedback about dual input displays because during the, I believe it was the last show, we talked... Wait,
2: was it a lot or
0: was it one tweet? Well... I saw one tweet. Now, pe- people kept tweeting and saying, mm-hmm. uh, isn't it possible if they just hooked up two cables? Right. From two cables from your Mac Pro to your monitor, then doesn't that solve the resolution problem? Or, you know, do you think Apple could do this? Do you think Apple will do this? Every variation. So there were a lot of tweets about
1: that. Right. but But, John, you have put one specific tweet into the show notes. Do you care to expound upon that?
0: Yeah, it was, it's a slide from Apple's most recent presentation about the Mac Pro that's showing the back of the machine, and it says next-generation video, up to three 4K displays, single and dual-input displays. And I don't even know what that means. I remember that being on the slide, but I guess I just forgot about it entirely. I'm not even sure what they're getting at. Do either one of you want to venture a guess? Well, last in last episode, we,
2: we talked about how it was going to be pretty impossible for them to ship a 5120 pixel wide monitor, which would be a perfect 2x of the current 27 inch. Um, that it would be impossible because it would use more bandwidth than a Thunderbolt 2.0 cable will support. And now back in the in the forever ago days, when the 30 inch cinema display first came out, it was one of the first monitors in the market to require dual link DVI. And what dual link DVI basically is, is a whole bunch more deep it's it basically like you know two regular dvi channels into uh, in one cable that has just a ton of pins and it required special video cards that would support this and it was and everything was very expensive and everything that was pretty much the same idea which is like you have this standard and forgive me if i'm getting this wrong please email us actually if i'm getting this wrong i'm curious but uh it was it was you know this the standard is not fast enough to support all this resolution so they basically as far as i know they basically like divided the display in half logically in the controllers and uh, and just like had each channel render one half of it so by doing something similar if you could link together say two thunderbolt cables uh, into one monitor that was made to handle this and the video cards were made to handle this as well uh, you could theoretically then have enough bandwidth to drive a 5120 pixel wide display off of the new mac pro and and doesn't the new um actually yeah the old one too the, the new retina macbook pro that also has thunderbolt 2 right now so far it's the only uh thunderbolt 2 computer that's shipping from apple um that has two ports on it as well and i don't know if it has this capability it might not uh, i don't think they've advertised it but it's it's worth noting that that does have two ports but this would be a way now. So last last episode, we were saying it's impossible to, for them to offer this monitor. Now, um, with the proof uh, from this slide from uh, Vegar Nielsen, thank you, um, with the proof from this slide, it actually shows that if a dual-input display exists and that works the way you think it would, which is being able to combine the bandwidth of both cables into one display, like dual-link DVI, uh, although that was one cable, but regardless, if this works the same way as that, that theoretical display now is possible again for the new Mac Pro.
0: But is that what it means on the slide when it says dual input displays? I'm not sure that what it means is a display that has two inputs and you need both inputs to drive the display at its native resolution. It could just as easily mean a display that has two different inputs so that you can switch between them, so two different Macs could share the same monitor. I don't I don't know what dual input display means. That's what I'm, what I'm getting at. And I didn't. But what value would... And
2: i I don't know, I mean I've never bought like you know like maybe this maybe there's something about pro displays but this is a common feature. What value would there be in Apple advertising their ability to plug into like a switched monitor that has two different inputs for two different sources like
0: I know that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. I think there's some context we're missing from people who from pros video pros or something that might use this. I'm sure we will get uh, email from the people explaining to us, but because they put it on a slide, but the expectation that everyone knows what it means. And I hadn't heard anything about it, meaning, you know, the equivalent of, oh, so if you don't have bandwidth to run the resolution, you can run two of them on. So uh, for all the people asking, is it possible that they could do this? It seems technically plausible, vaguely plausible, because dueling DVI wasn't a standard that Apple made, I don't think. It was part of the, you know, whatever the DVI consortium is or whatever.
2: No, I, I think they were just some of the first ones to use it.
0: All right. This this sounds a little bit weirder, you know, especially since it would be two, two actual cables and they, like, bundle them together or something. I don't know, but it's within the realm of possibility. Will Apple do this? Uh I think the cost probably the cost of a display at that resolution is puts it outside the realm of things that Apple will do even if they could technically do it. Uh but I think the wild card is what did Apple mean by dual input displays? And it seems like none of us know for sure. Uh so if anyone out there knows for sure exactly what Apple meant by dual input displays, let us know.
2: The other thing we should point out right now is that we're recording this on uh, Monday, December 16th at, at night. It is very, very likely that the Mac Pros are coming out tomorrow. <laughs> so it's very likely that by the time most people hear this, the new Mac Pros will already be out. And if Apple was going to make any kind of display announcement at that time, uh, that might have already happened as well. And other people might have already gotten these and tested them. And we're saying all of this before the new Mac Pros actually out. Uh, so this all could be irrelevant in 12 hours.
1: Why do you say that tomorrow would be the day, which would be
2: Tuesday the seventeenth? Because today they rushed out on a ten nine one update that supports the new Mac Pro, and it's what this is one of the and they like to do the releases on Tuesdays, and this is one of the last uh, potential weeks for them to release something and still be in December because half of Apple shuts down next week.
0: And this was the rumored date as of a couple of weeks ago, anyway, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So it's it's I'd say I I would say the ten nine one release today all but confirms it um i i would say it's almost certain that they're being released in 12 hours
0: although i think hasn't apple released hardware in the recent past where if you buy the new hardware you get a newer newer build of the OS than you could get on an existing mac i don't know if they've ever done it where you where you get you know you can get 10.91 but only if you buy a mac pro and then a week later it comes out for everybody else but they have definitely done things where you if you want to buy this new hardware you get a, a newer build of OS 10 than anybody else can get and you got to wait until the next update
2: yeah that they definitely have done that so with its
0: with its release imminent john are you buying one tomorrow no i'm definitely not buying one tomorrow no i i have to wait even if everything was just right i I want to wait until every people test it. i want to see i want to see gaming benchmarks you know
2: as far as i know i don't think i'm going to buy one tomorrow um un- as i said unless they actually announce some kind of retina display in which case i would i would buy both immediately but besides that, I'm, I think I'm also going to wait and see. I'm really curious to, to see from reports from people about how it compares to the 2010 Mac Pro in practice. You know, it has all sorts of, you know, besides the CPU improvements, which are, you know, they're, they're there, but it's not really what you'd expect from three years of, of CPU progress. Um, so besides the CPU improvements, which are, say, moderate, I want to know, like, you know, is this whole new version of the, of the system architecture, like this all PCI Express everywhere, maximized for throughput, and then these GPUs being super high power. Like, I want to know, is it, how big of an upgrade is that in practice, in regular use, using not just, you know, 3D rendering apps that will use the GPUs, but using just general apps, development apps, uh, photo, audio, production stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I would love to know, like, how much of an upgrade is this really? if you already have a 2010 Mac Pro.
0: With a gigantic PCI Express SSD in it already.
2: That's true. <laughs> well, my my SSD is mediocre.
0: Oh, that's another thing. Like, the disk throughput, the quote-unquote disk throughput of uh, of this uh, the solid-state drives in this thing, I, I'm interested in that as well, because I think that will have more of an impact on my daily life than the speed of the CPUs. Right, exactly.
2: And, you know, because in theory... The way this is architected, there's a lot of stuff missing from it, Uh, and and one like all you know various card slots and a few old interfaces like FireWire. One of the reasons they did all that was so they could basically like devote all of the PCI Express lanes available in the chipset and from the CPU, devote all of that to you know just maximum throughput for the core components. And I want to know, can you feel that? Is that noticeable? We are sponsored this week by our friends at Backblaze. It is unlimited and unthrottled online backup. Backblaze, and I, I use Backblaze personally. I've used it for years, long before they were a sponsor of anything I did. Um, it's just $5 a month for unlimited space. It's really fantastic. And, and you know, I've used, I've used other online backups. Backblaze is my favorite. Um, it, you can't beat that price. And with other ones, I've had problems with throttling. That's why they say unthrottled in their ad read. I think this is a problem in the industry where sometimes um, apparently some providers will throttle you after you've uploaded a certain amount per time period. Like you're going too fast, they can't handle it or it's causing them too much, they'll slow you down. Um, my problem with some of the other ones is, is not necessarily that, but that their servers are just too slow. They just, like I have this nice Fios uh, upstream of 65 megabits, which is amazing. And most providers just can't take the files that quickly. Backblaze, I've never had that problem. It is always rock solid. It is always uploaded as fast as I'm willing to send the files, and uh, it's really fantastic. So they have these cool features, too. They have uh, Selective Restore. You can just you know pull one file off if you want to. Very handy if there was one time I uh, I took a vacation, and there was a file on my home computer that I didn't have in Dropbox. I just had it somewhere on the hard drive, and I wanted to access that. And I had no way, you know, back to my Mac worked for like a year and then stopped working (laughs) in 2011. So I haven't had Back to My Mac working for years. Uh, I couldn't pull it off that way. Backblaze, I just logged in. I I was able to restore that file and get it and work on it. It was fantastic. Everything worked exactly as you'd expect. Um, They have an iOS app. You can also browse your files directly from their iOS app. Uh, So it's like you have access to all your stuff wherever you are. Uh, And Backblaze was founded by ex-Apple Engineers, uh, it runs natively on your Mac and works perfectly with Mavericks. I, I've had zero problems with Mavericks. Uh, so that's pretty much it. It's, there are no add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. $5 a month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled online backup. It is the simplest online backup program to use. Just install it, and it does the rest. Uh, go to backblaze.com slash ATP. And uh, thanks a lot to our sponsor, Backblaze. $5 a month for unlimited and unthrottled backup. backblaze.com slash ATP.
0: And everybody should have an offsite backup of some kind and online is the easiest and probably also the cheapest offsite backup you can get.
1: Yeah. We just received, uh, at least John and I received a tweet from someone I don't have it handy saying, oh my goodness, I should have listened to John about backing up because I just lost 12 months worth of work because I didn't have a backup.
0: It could have just installed a piece of software in five minutes and paid $5 a month, which is not that much in the grand scheme of things. Just don't go out to lunch one time a month and you're fine. Uh, and he would have had all his stuff and some peace of mind. Yep.
2: Yeah, it's it's really great. And it's also, you know, this is a great thing, too, if you're like, if you're visiting, say, your parents or grandparents and they have a computer. Like, I, I use online backup for my mom because I, I, I got her a computer a few years back. She loves it. She puts everything on there. But I know she's never going to manage time machine. You know, it's a laptop. It's all over the house. Time capsules are unreliable. I, I don't even want to mess with that. I just want to know that she has online backup, and I can check in, I can go online, and I can make sure her computer has been backed up recently. And Backblaze provides all that nice peace of mind, uh, fantastic for yourself and for setting up things for your for your uh, relatives who you don't want to lose data.
0: Yeah, You should make it as a Christmas gift idea when you do the, the annual uh, visiting the relatives and fixing all their computer stuff. Just install Backblaze on them for it. Because for, for casual users who are not downloading multi-gigabyte things all the time and everything... You say, well, their internet connection is not fast enough to use online backup. The initial backup is probably going to take a long time on their terrible, like, DSL connection or whatever crazy thing they're using. But once they get through that initial backup, casual computer users don't produce data that, you know, and that high volume. I mean, Backblaze will automatically, you know, not back up stuff that it doesn't have to, right? So you don't have to worry about, oh, well, what about all their cache files from safari when they do web browsing it's not going to back up that stuff it's just going to back up the data they their own data and casual users don't produce that much data so it will have no problem keeping their update their backup up to date uh you know in practically in real time every day once it gets caught up and it won't take that long so oh yeah i mean my mom's entire backup set is 30 gigs and how much does it grow a day like you know the the daily the (laughs) day the daily uh churn in that is probably like a megabyte or two no problem uploading that Right. And, and I,
2: and, you know, I can tell you too, like, I mean, I have on my computer, I have about 800 gigs in Backblaze. My wife has about one and a half terabytes in Backblaze. And I I said, we've used this for years and we've never had a problem, even with that much data.
1: All right. Uh, We have a little bit more follow-up specifically around TV related things. John, you went on an absolutely fantastic rant uh, last episode about your new TV and one thing in particular, uh, that that and the, the dual-link display idea, we got a lot of feedback about. So would you care to talk about how to calibrate your TV? Yeah,
0: I talked a little bit about calibration last episode, how I was there's lots of settings and I was playing with all i them, trying to get it dialed in. And then I got a, a, a bunch of tweets from people asking about this topic, including some tweets from Daniel Jalco, who just recently bought a Panasonic Blaster television. And I was talking to him about it. It was making me realize how few people know anything about it. i mean even you guys are like calibrate my tv what, is, what are you even talking about uh so i figured i would go over just a couple of basic things you can do to make your television look better almost anybody you don't need to have a fancy tv it doesn't even need to be a plasma tv uh but uh, you know you can make your tv a lot better and, and basically what it comes down to is that your tv looks bad now and you probably don't even know it uh, so the first thing that lots of people tweeted about was a calibration app that's on the app store from the THX company. Well, I guess Lucasfilm or whoever owns them now. I believe it's pronounced Thix. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. John, and, uh, I thought you were better than that. No. And uh, it works if you have an iOS device and either an Apple TV so you can AirPlay it to your TV or some way to connect the iOS device to your TV with an HDMI cable. I used AirPlay to my Apple TV it had i think it had options for HDMI but i don't know what the options are there in terms of cable. So anyway, it's like $2. Don't buy the application if you can't do one of those two things. You can read read the description to see if you can. Uh I, I bought it just out of curiosity because I already have a THX calibration thing that came with my TiVo that is basically the same test. The iOS one has a little bit of integration with your camera which is only so-so, but it's really simple, really basic, but even, you know, even without that, you can probably find somewhere where you can download some test patterns or something to adjust your television. The THX app just happens to make it easy uh, to do this stuff. The tricky part is you need, you need to get a picture on your television and you don't want it to go through anything that screws with the picture. So if you like got an image on your computer and tried to use like AirPlay mirroring onto your TV, I would worry that that would not be a good simulation of uh, the, the image. And Or if you wanted to adjust your Blu-ray player, really you probably need something on a blu-ray to go out the blu-ray player and onto your television that's not to say that you need to calibrate every single input of your television separately but it is possible that some devices you have connected to your computer could output different kinds of signals uh, than other devices so be careful about that but anyway here's my quick tips for calibration uh, the first one is make sure the devices that are connected to your television are outputting what you think they're they're outputting to your television set So, for example, if you get a cable or satellite TV or whatever, something like that, it's sending you your television shows in a particular format. And say you have Comcast and the television comes over as 1080i. Make sure that it's going into the back of your television as a 1080i signal. You'd be surprised at how many people have things configured where their television shows are 1080i, but... Through the series of boxes or devices or inputs they're going through, it's being converted to 720p to be shown on their television. Or vice versa. You have a 720p signal, and your TV could show 720p, but it's set up to show it as 1080i. Most televisions and the boxes and receivers and things in between will convert between 1080i and 720p, and, and even 1080p. They will upsample, downsample, do whatever it takes. You want it to go through... Sort of natively, whatever the native is. If the native is 720, have your TV show at 720. If the native is 1080i or P, have it show that way. That's not even a calibration step. That's just, you know, look at all the settings and all the devices in your chain and make sure you're not messing up the signal. That sometimes is easier than uh, said than done. Like old TiVos used to have a whole bunch of different settings where you could, you put out like the cable goes into your TiVo, like the television signal. And then HDMI comes out of your TiVo and the TiVo used to say, okay, I can take the signal coming in and I can convert it to any format you want and send it to your television, or I could not touch it at all and just pass it through. And that's always the one you want. They used to call it native or whatever. Nowadays with the modern TiVos, I don't think they even have that option. You just have to know what the input signal is and match it up for the output signal. Uh, and the second thing for TiVos in particular is if you hit the up arrow button on the five way selector, it will change the format. And if you have children in your house, they will accidentally hit that up arrow selector many, many times. And so you will have everything configured, then one day sit down to your television and wonder why things look a little weird. Uh, it's probably because one of your kids hit the up arrow while they are watching television and changed the format. So check for that. Uh, the second thing is about the size of the image on the screen. And this is another thing I'm surprised that not a lot of people know about. If you buy a television, you're like, oh, 1080p, it's got full HD 1080 resolution, right? Uh, and if you know about the resolution, I think it's uh, it's 1920 by 1080 if you were to do it in pixels. And so you figure if you're watching a television show and that television show put up a test pattern image that showed a one-pixel-wide rectangle that was 1920 by 1080 pixels, you would expect to see, like around the edge of your screen, that one-pixel-wide border. You know, say it's like a white, a white rectangle and a black background. In reality, on any television you buy pretty much, you will see nothing because they will cut off the edges of the screen that's called the overscan or lots of other different names for it it's from the the CRT days where the images at the edges of a CRT were really low quality and they would cover them on television sets with like a plastic part of the bezel and everything and someone was giving me more historical context on why they did that, but the bottom line was that there was a safe area where you can show an image where you were sure it would show up on everybody's television set. And there was the unsafe area, which on most people's television set would be covered by some other plastic trim piece. There are no plastic trim pieces covering the edges of your televisions. If you have an HD television and it has 1080p resolution, you can see all those pixels. But the, all those televisions will take your television signal and zoom it so it's bigger than your television so you can only see sort of like the inner, you know, that it'll cut off a frame of the thing. So that does two things. One, it makes you misinformation, things that are outside, outside of that area you won't see at all. And the second thing is it takes all those nice native, if you're lucky, 1080p or 1080i pixels, and it will stretch it. It's like taking a picture, taking a desktop background picture that exactly fits your monitor and then making the size bigger by 5%. You're missing part of the picture and the part you see is blurry. So almost all televisions, not just the fancy ones, have a setting somewhere in them where you can tell it, don't do that don't turn off over scan sometimes they have different, what size should it be size one size two look in the manual for your television this is another tip if you can't find the manual for your television just google for your television's model name manual pdf you'll find the manual pdfs online somewhere and find that setting because if you paid for a 1080p television or a 720p television or whatever you should see all those pixels at their native resolution to think of it in a in, uh, television parlance this, these are these two steps, input resolution and the size of the picture, are two things that anybody can do. You don't need an application to do it, and there are pretty much no downsides, downsides to it. Some people were saying that if you do that, you might see booms in the shot, like uh, microphone booms, because people expect every television to be overscanning that. In my experience, running television at the proper size for four years now since I got my first HDTV, uh, that has not been a problem. I have not seen a bunch of... Uh, you know, boom mics coming down from the top of the screen or things from the side. But even if I did, I would say that's the problem of the show it's not mine. I don't want all of my television to all of the images on my television to be zoomed in and uh, a little bit blurry with stuff cut off around the edge. Uh, third item, I would say that everyone should adjust. And here's where you need a calibration thing is brightness and contrast. The two calibration things that you'll look at in either this THX app or any other type of thing are one shows you a bunch of gray boxes going from white down to black. And you will adjust your brightness until a certain number of boxes are visible like they'll usually have it so you're not supposed to see all the boxes like you shouldn't see the last box or the second to last box or whatever adjusting that level is important because it lets you see some shadow detail but you know not too much like the test images often say you should see a person in front of a background and if that background looks entirely black to you your thing is is not dialed in correctly and if, it looks, if you see too much stuff on it, then it's, it's, it's too bright. So you should adjust it until you get just the right boxes uh, visible. It's a pretty easy test to do. You don't need any special equipment. You just need your eyeball. They'll say something like, make it as dark as you can so you can still see box 7. That's something anybody can do just by looking at it. Maybe you want to do it in a light room or a dark room, uh, depending on how you watch television. Uh, and contrast similarly, they'll show you something like a series of four white boxes. And I said, if this just looks like a big white rectangle, your contrast is too high. Turn the contrast down until you see actual four distinct white boxes of varying levels of gray. There should be lines between the white boxes. If you're losing the line between the last two white boxes and they're starting to blend together, you need to uh, dial your contrast. Those two settings, plus the size, plus the input resolution, will improve the picture on your television set. Not just making it more accurate uh, to what it's supposed to look like, but generally making things look nicer. Not look washed out, not look too dark, not look too bright. Uh and then I haven't even touched anything having to do with color uh in terms of exactly dialing in the red, the green, and the blue and all this other stuff. Uh but just brightness, contrast, size, and input resolution will go a long way. And the final thing, I talked about this in the last show, was turn off all the crazy effects. If your television has crazy effects and it probably does, you just need to turn them all off. Uh LCDs you might want to leave motion interpolation on if it looks weird to you, if motion looks weird to you without it. But other than that, all the things about like vivid color and extra brightness and the title of the last episode brilliance enhancer you just need to turn that off and i actually pasted into the show notes because i wanted to know these actual names i didn't have them in front of me last time here are the actual names of the settings from my fancy new television set these are not made up and these are not like gathered from several different models these are all on one television set caption smoother mpeg remaster motion smoother resolution remaster video nr C A T S acronym with periods between the letters: photo enhancement, vivid color, color remaster, black extension, and automatic gamma control. And all those things of explanations in the manual, trying to explain what they do. The bottom line is, just turn them all off. Every (laughs) single one of them, turn them off. What if I like cats? (laughs) Do you know what what cats is? Nobody knows. Like that's, they have terrible names too. You can look up what they do. Well, basically, what all of them do is mess with the picture in a way they think might be helpful. Uh, but generally is not helpful, especially on a plasma television that doesn't have the problems that need to be compensated for by effects like this. Uh, The motion smoother is the one that really galls me on plasmas. On an LCD television, you will have similar settings. If you turn them all off and it looks like crap, figure out which one or two you need to turn on to make it not look like crap to you, but do not leave them all on, especially things like vivid color or color remaster, things that are going to screw with your colors. Those just make everybody look like clowns and make things look totally wrong. So you don't, need, you don't need to hire someone to come into your house to do a professional calibration to, to improve the picture of your television. Those four things, just turn off the effects, check your input resolution, check your size, and check your brightness and contrast. It'll make a big difference in your life.
2: I actually hate cats.
0: What about CATS, though? You might like them.
2: I don't know. I haven't read the manual. We are also sponsored this week by Hover. Hover as, is high-quality, no-hassle domain name registration. Go to hover.com slash ATP or use promo code ATP for 10% off. Hover takes all the hassle and friction out of owning and managing domain names. They offer smart, easy-to-use, and powerful domain name management tools. Hover believes that everyone should be able to take control of their online identity with their own domain name, and Hover makes it easy to do so. They're part of 2COWS, which is a company that's been around basically forever— and they're one of the largest domain registrars in the world. They offer tons of TLDs. They got .net, .co, .com, of course, uh, .tv, all sorts of country codes, and many more domain names. And they're always adding more. You can get .dot just about anything. So Hover does not believe in heavy-handed cross-selling or really, you know, aggressive upselling. They don't believe in hiding functionality or requiring extra payment for things that really should be included for free with domain names, such as who is privacy, subdomains, and URL forwarding. They also have their own email service. However, email makes it easy and affordable to create a memorable email address uh, without having to use one of the uh, impersonal, forgettable webmail addresses that you can get for free elsewhere. They also offer Google apps for business on any domain, new or old. And One of the best things about Hover is that they have amazing customer support. So not only do they have excellent online help with all sorts of documentation and tutorials, but they also have this awesome no-hold, no-wait, and no-transfer f- telephone support policy. So you can call this 866 number Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern, and a real live person, probably in Canada, because they're in Canada, which that means they're going to be really nice, of course, and a little bit cold maybe, but really nice. Uh, they're gonna be speaking. You're going to be speaking to a live person, picking up the phone, Almost immediately, you know, second ring, maybe you might you might have to wait till the second ring, but almost immediately. And the person who picks, picks the phone will actually be able to help you, they will have the power to help you, you want to be transferred to 10 different people. No, you call them up anytime during their business hours, 8am to 8pm Monday through Friday, and you are speaking to a person. And that is incredibly unusual in pretty much any business these days. Let alone something that takes place mostly on the internet like domain name registration. So go to hover.com slash ATP for high quality, no hassle domain name registration. And don't forget to use promo code ATP for 10% off any purchase you make at Hover. Thanks a lot to Hover for sponsoring our show
0: again. Got a couple more things on uh, calibration. You? Yeah. One is uh, the frequent suggestion by many people who either have the same television, me or have other similar television, they say, Uh, They go into a forum, CNET has forums like this, there's AVS forums, there's tons of uh, websites about high-definition televisions on the web, where people buy televisions, calibrate them either professionally or sort of by hand by themselves, and then they post to the forum group what their settings are. So there's a million different settings for brightness, contrast, color, tint, gamma, like tons of things you can adjust. And they will adjust it to their liking or have it professionally calibrated and Post those numbers to the forum. And CNET, the people who review televisions on CNET, will also post their settings. they say, We calibrated this television before we did our testing for our review. Here are the settings we used. Uh, I tend not to just take those settings and use them on my television because, particularly with plasmas, each individual example of a particular model varies enough that you're not going to, I don't think you're going to get, uh, it, I mean, these are like, you know, 10 point, 15 point white balance adjustments of tiny, minute uh, degrees. I don't think those settings that they use for their television set are going to work for mine, even if we have the exact same make, model, and year, just because of variations within individual televisions. Uh, and and then on top of that, there's aging, where the televisions look different as you use them, more. again, particularly the plasmas. So I wouldn't blindly take any of those settings and apply them to your television and expect you are seeing what they're seeing. But I've been looking at them to give myself sort of a ballpark idea of what are people doing, and particularly look at the gamma settings to see you know, what, what gamma values they are using? And there's lots of weird stuff, especially with Panasonic televisions where they'll have a bunch of presets and then a custom setting. And the, if you pick one gamma level and the custom, it's not the same as if you did it on a preset. So you have to look at all the details. Like they started with this setting, they tweak these things. So they started with that and they tweak those. And there's also the super duper professional mode where you can expose all the settings in the television through some crazy interface by, you know, typing in weird codes on your remote to get even more settings and screw with those. And at that level, I mean, once you're doing that, I would say don't do that. Hire a professional to do that. But if you want to look at these, uh, these forums to get an idea of what things people are setting, for example, if you did it visually, like you did those tests with the, with the black levels and the contrast, and you, and you got some numbers dialed in, and then you go to a forum post and you see seven different forum posts on different websites, and everybody has their contrast set at like 63 or 62, and you have yours at 12, you probably did something wrong right that that it's just like a sanity check so i wouldn't say copy those numbers blindly but uh that's a lot of people have talked about that and asked me if i'd use the settings no i don't use them directly but i do use them to just check that i'm not entirely crazy good thing that can be verified well you know it's supporting evidence against for or against
1: all right so everyone has been talking about rating things so i think now's as good a time to any as any to say rate the rate our show on itunes uh now uh do you want to do that now later or not at all
2: No, no no do you want to rate our show well now or do you want to email us your negative thoughts right or do you want to be reminded to rate us well in two weeks
1: or how about with every episode of the podcast we'll just ask you again during the show do you want to rate us
2: that actually is what a lot of podcasts do <laughs>
1: Yeah, I realized about halfway through that that I was sticking my foot <laughs> right down my throat. So let me move on and say, Marco, do you happen to have any thoughts about rating apps and asking and soliciting users to rate apps?
2: Yeah, don't. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Fastest topic ever.
1: <laughs> we figured it out.
2: No, I mean, this, this was discussed uh, at length in, in last week's uh, episode of John Gruber's uh, The Talk Show uh, with Daniel Jalkut. And it was a really good discussion, so I don't think we need to rehash most of it. Um, the gist of my position is really, you know, so we're talking about those, in case you couldn't tell, we're talking about those uh, rate, these, the, the rate this app dialogues that pop up uh, in many iOS apps, big and small. Um, hey, rate this app. You want to go, you know, leave a great rating now or remind me later or never do it again? they've kind of become this this like plague on iOS devices with uh, a plague with very minor effects <laughs> um, that it just it's like slightly annoying everybody um, you know Gruber started out uh, about a week ago now saying like I've often thought about starting a campaign online to just make everybody rate one star when they see one of those uh, which is like his nice way of like kind of seeding the idea without Saying, "I'm telling you all to do this right now." <laughs> a masterful uh, phrasing. You know, we, we've had a lot of discussion here and there um, between various smart people in the community uh, about the pros and cons of of these rate this app dialogues, and and the pros and cons of what would happen if you started retaliating and 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 like you know, rating everything one star or or rating everything only three stars instead of five, or what, you know, whatever the case may be my position is not that you should necessarily take any particular action towards the apps that do this. My position is really just telling developers you should not have this in your app uh, because it really... And I think Grouper had a really good point in the talk show about why this is so irritating, is that a modal dialog box that pops up in your face when you're trying to do something with an app, Like that's a modal dialog box should be reserved for basically exceptions, like in programming parlance, like something that is not supposed to be the common case. You know, like there was some kind of weird server error and we can't do what you asked. Or you just tried to authenticate and you couldn't log in because you know, it refused your password. Or like you're trying to do something right now and you, we can't do it because you turned off cellular data or location services or something like that. You know, that's the kind of conditions in which a modal dialog block is appropriate. Um, interrupting people to serve the developer like rating an app doesn't do crap for the people who are doing it. it it doesn't serve them at all it only serves the developer you're asking people to promote you or to make you feel good about yourself either way you're asking you 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 the developer are asking people to do something for you and you're asking them that by interrupting them in the middle of them trying to use your app and probably trying to get something done you're interrupting them to say hey help me out here by, you know, reviewing me and, and, you know, pimping me in the store. And that seems like a very inappropriate use of an interruption to your user like that.
1: You know, I almost wonder if now is a decent time to expose Marco to corporate culture. And what I mean by that is, I I wonder if now is a good time for the five whys. So, Marco, put on your not-so-awesome developer hat. And you're thinking right now about putting this into your app. Or actually, let's say you just did put this into Overcast for the sake of conversation.
2: Well.
1: I know you never would.
2: Just try, try hard. Well, and, and for me, let me just say for, while we're on the Overcast topic, I said right in my post, I am putting a thing in the settings screen that like a button to say, leave a review for this app in the store, like a, just a button there. That is different. If you want to make it easy for people who do want to leave a review for you, if you want to give them a shortcut or suggest they might want to do that in a passive way, like a button in an about screen, that's very different than interrupting them with a, with a message box in normal use of the app. I don't have any problem with a button in, in an about screen. That, you can put whatever you want there. I don't care. That, that doesn't interrupt me. And if I'm browsing in settings or about, I might actually consider doing that because the, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm playing with stuff or I'm exploring this app. But when you're actually trying to do something and you get interrupted by a modal dialog box, that's the problem. So I want to draw the distinction. It's not that asking for reviews at all is bad or providing a shortcut at all is bad. It's the way you're asking by in, by interrupting people in a modal way like this.
1: Right. So you're writing Overcast, and you had a brain fart. I don't know. Maybe you had too much Chimay one night, and you've put this into your app why why did you put
2: a i love the idea of a drunk feature edition
1: <laughs> right that's w- that's when the best work is done uh, why would you put a solicitation to rate your app into overcast I- if you were the kind of developer that would do that sort of thing?
2: The main reason why people do this and the reason why hypothetical drunk me would do this on overcast if i somehow i don't know when i when I have a lot of chama i I don't get bad taste um but <laughs> But uh, in fact, I would argue if you're getting drunk on Chimay, I think you have pretty good taste. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, in all seriousness, uh, to borrow one of your phrases, I think the reason people do this is very clear. It works in, this, in, in the definition of works, where it does get you more reviews.
1: Now, why, well, now, why would you want more reviews?
2: The theory is I've heard different things. Obviously, we know from just like a customer perspective, we know that when we are browsing for apps, usually we do read the reviews or at least we'll glance at them or glance at at the star rating, the average star rating. Um, and you know it is there's is a distinction between ratings and reviews. You don't have to write a written review to leave a star rating, but I don't think for the purpose of this of this discussion, I don't think it really matters um, so there there's one argument to say that when customers find it, they will read the reviews. And if you don't have a lot of reviews or if you have a couple of bad reviews and no positive ones to offset them, um, then that'll make them less likely to buy your app. That that I can't argue with. That is true. However, uh, I've heard a lot of people also say that reviews are correlated with rank. And I don't think we have any evidence to confirm that. And, and, and a couple people said that it specifically doesn't do that. So that's all over the map. I, I would love to hear from anybody who has actual evidence to support whether that's true or false or not as far as i know rank is all about sales volume Uh, it's like sales volume per time interval uh i don't think it has anything to do with with uh, reviews but that it could change i don't know
1: why do you want more why do you want a higher rank
2: uh to get rich in the app store
1: Well, well why would that make you rich in the app store
2: um because nobody pays for apps anymore
1: the the line of all kidding aside the line of questioning I'm trying to lead you down is that and I and I believe that to some degree underscore David Smith talked about this in his really good blog post today um, but I, I feel like the 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 end of the five whys of this conversation is that discovery is broken and if not discovery then finding a way to pitch your app in such it, so that I don't need to double check your work. What I mean by that is if I throw up a bunch of really awesome screenshots and I throw up a really nice description, you're going to want to double check from real people that I'm not full of it, that I'm not lying. And I think it's a combination of discovery and representation of the app that makes this sort of gross behavior necessary. Because if discovery was really good then I would be able to find apps very easily. And then once I found the app that I think I might want, if if the selling of it, if the marketing of it within the app store was really good, then say if we had a video, for example, or maybe if you had a trial, and I'm not trying to go down that road, I'm just saying hypothetically, if you had like a one-day trial or whatever, then it wouldn't matter what the reviews, or certainly wouldn't matter as much what the reviews say, and it wouldn't matter as much what the ratings are but because developers have almost no levers to pull in order to improve their performance, define performance however you want in the app store, this is one of the only levers they've got. So darn it, they're going to pull on it. And that that's that was the exercise the 5 why's exercise I was trying to bring you down.
0: I think this uh the reason this comes up at all, like the reason it ends up on daring fireball fireball or whatever is not so much because apps do annoying things, because I think the app store has always been, you know, like the two americas thing from whoever that guy was who tried to run for president. There's the two app stores. There's the uh the one that's full of crap that we just ignore, we being, you know, the the mac nerd blogger whatever people. And there's the good app store with the apps that we like and we use. Uh and the reason this rate me thing comes up is because it's not limited to the crap app store. Apps that we all like and use every day do this. Instagram, like our favorite Twitter client, uh, you know, our favorite note-taking application. Everybody does it. The super high class, well-designed, well-regarded. We love the application. Couldn't live without it. Everything about it is awesome. Responsive developer, releases bug fixes, has reasonable prices, great application all around. Even they have stupid Rate Me dialog boxes on them. Not all of them, but it's it's a an infection of annoyance that has crossed over into our world. And that's why you get someone like John Gruber saying, well, this has got to stop. I mean, I love these applications that I use every day, but they got to get out of my face. Uh, if, and because there are tons of terrible things that happen only in the crap app store, like blinking ad banners in your face and, you know, just all sorts of ugly UIs and, and uh, things that are modal when they shouldn't be. And just, you know, there's tons of crap applications. We don't care what happens over there. It doesn't affect us because we, you know, we feel like we're discerning and we talk to each other and say what the good applications are and make recommendations. And then when we get one of these good applications that we use every single day and it throws up one of those rating dialogues boxes, it's like a betrayal. It's like, that's not supposed to happen here. This is the good app store where I all talk to my friends and get all my stuff. And that gets back to the discovery thing Casey was talking about, where if we had a way to look at an application and it said something like and i know this is getting all facebooky it's going to scare everybody it's going to be like oh six of your friends uh, use this application and they like it it means so much more than wading through a hundred possibly paid for five-star reviews from you know amazon mechanical turk or whatever these developers do to, to get their scam reviews in, especially when you're going into an area that you're not that familiar with on the app store these sort of social proof that people who you know and trust have decided this application is good that's all you need is to see like from three other people saying this is good or this is bad that you happen to know that would be make so much more difference to you than just these random reviews but there's no way to put that in there's no way to you know i guess we have the reputation of the developer which maybe we know maybe we don't and then we just have a whole bunch of reviews that we can't even tie back to individual people even if we see a name that we think we recognize unless we know that's the name under which some friend of ours leaves reviews on the i star we have no idea uh so the, the reaction to this in terms of putting up a thing that says what if we uh, you know i've always i've been thinking about asking people to one star rate this as a as a weird way to suggest one star rating of it it's in in effect that's not the way to go about it the actual campaign the suggestion of a way to the campaign to go about it but what we want to happen and what i think is going to happen uh is not that kind of one star campaign but a socialization of the idea that putting up rating dialogue boxes is unacceptable in the quote unquote good app store. And that's what we're all looking for. You know, get that stuff out of the applications that we like the high quality, well-designed applications from good developers that we use every day that are really popular that we like. We've already got this whole thing of like when an application goes bad, like people used to like Tweety and then Twitter bought them and it was still okay. And then they changed it and now it's crap. And now nobody uses the official Twitter client for iOS if they can help it at all. That's an application going bad. It was good. It did conform to sort of our, you know, taste and social norm guidelines in, at least in the, you know, the Mac nerd or iOS nerd community. And then it didn't anymore. And we we kicked it out, right? But all these other applications are still doing this. We need to socialize all of the, you know, software reviewers, developers, consumers of it, people who think they have a good taste and everything. Socialize the idea that you can't put up these Rate Me dialog boxes. Otherwise, we will look down on you in some way. That's all you need. You don't need to one-star ratings. You don't need to uh, attack people or to punish their applications. If you socialize, everybody involved in this good half of the ecosystem that putting up rating dialogs boxes is unacceptable, the problem will take care of itself because no one wants to be that app that puts up the rating dialog boxes. And the problem is that somehow we got to a point where that was deemed acceptable by almost everybody involved. And I think this exercise is going to turn that around if we keep at it without any stupid campaigns to rate things one stars or retaliate or send people email.
2: Yeah, I mean that was that was kind of the main argument of my post is like yeah, you can you can do this and and it it quote works, but at at what cost to to quality and to your reputation, to your brand. You know, like if <laughs> like there's lots of things that work. Telemarketing and spam work. But, you know, most reasonable people hate those things. Um, and so, and like, and the telemarketers would argue, well, you know, we're just we're just calling you up, and you know, it's once a week, maybe for two seconds, and you hang up if you don't like it. Like I've gotten, <laughs> it's always it's always good when you when you attack a portion of your own audience. <laughs> that's that's when you get the biggest feedback. Uh, but I've gotten so much feedback uh, since I published my post about this from developers saying it's no big deal if you don't like those, you just hit dismiss and then you don't see it for a little while (laughs) or something. Um, but that is a big deal. That's like, if you're annoying somebody slightly, you're still annoying them. And that builds up over time. You, you get the, the image in people's minds, the brand image of like, of kind of being mediocre on quality or on standards that matters. It all adds up. And (sighs) I don't know. My I am torn on this because you know it, it's hard for me to talk about this because anything I say people jump down my throat immediately saying, "Well, you didn't have to do all that cuz, you know, you were popular or something." Um forgetting that the re- the way I got popular was because of InstaPaper. You know, not, not I wasn't popular before launching that. Uh you know, that that's but so it's hard for me to say anything, and and for anybody to take it seriously in this regard, because they just pulled the that's fine for Merlin argument against me. Mm-hmm. But I really th- I I I can't I can't say enough how much those little quality decisions matter, and they add up, and that's how you get popular. That's how you get respected is by caring so much about quality that you won't annoy your users for a split second every two weeks. That really matters, and I I don't know how else to tell people that. Uh, without sounding like I'm attacking them. Um, but it is annoying, and it it does matter. Uh, let me take a quick break right now before I get to my next bigger point and tell you about our final sponsor this week. It is Audible. Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks with over 150,000 titles in virtually every genre. They have a huge catalog. It's growing constantly. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. You can listen to Audible audiobooks anytime, anywhere, iPhones, iPads, computers, Kindles, even old iPods if you actually have one of those still kicking around. Audible's offering ATP listeners a free audiobook along with a 30-day trial. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash ATP to take advantage of this special offer. Now, Casey, I've heard through the grapevine that you have recently listened to a book or read a book.
1: Indeed. I recently read, and this was actually recommended by someone on Twitter a few months ago when I was going to the beach and I wanted to have some books to read. And so I solicited recommendations on Twitter and somebody recommended Machine Man by Max Barry, B-A-R-R-Y. I just finished reading it. I did not read it on uh, on Audible, but I read the book book. Um, It was extremely weird. And I don't know if I liked it or not, but it was very different. And for that alone... Strong
2: recommendation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, for that alone, though, it, it may be worth checking out. And the, the the TLDR version is... I'm sorry, the summary, John, is that uh, there's a guy who's a PhD, and he accidentally chops off one of his legs working in his lab because he works with like this big equipment. And so he gets a prosthetic leg and then realizes, well, you know, I could build a better one. And so he builds himself a better prosthetic leg and then realizes, you know what, this would be better as a pair instead of just one. And I'll let you read the book to fill. I'll let you read the book to fill in kind of where this goes. But it was very, very, very different. And so I double checked. And it, of course, is available on Audible. And Audible has been kind enough to sponsor ATP a handful of times. And every time I think of a book recommendation, even if it's slightly esoteric, I go to Audible to see before I recommend it, hey, is this available on Audible? And every single time the
2: answer has been yes. So feel free to go to Audible and get Casey's weird book recommendation. What was it called again? The Machine Man?
1: It's called Machine Man by Max Berry, B-A-R-R-Y. Did he
0: win Pulitzer Prize for that or no?
1: I don't think so, but it's a lot shorter than your recommendation.
0: <laughs> just, just asking. <laughs> this is just questions.
1: It's less than 60 hours. <laughs> I think it was 600, wasn't it? I don't know. The length is 9 hours and 27 minutes on Audible.
2: Awesome. So thanks a lot to Audible uh, once again for sponsoring our show. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash ATP.
1: And uh, really quickly to build on not the book, but Audible, you know, we're going on a car trip uh, to go to my family's soon. And the best way in the entire world to kill time on a car trip, other than listening to this show, is to get a book on quote unquote tape. So get to get something from Audible. And right now, I mean they're offering you a free audiobook to fill, in the case of this particular selection, a ten hour car ride. How can you say no to that? There's no reason not to go check it out.
2: Or you can get John's pick, which is the power broker, and uh, and fill your next three years of car rides. <laughs> right. All right. So the point I wanted to start before I, I took that break, because I knew this might be a little bit long. So back to Apple and, and discoverability and searchability. I I would take the position and I know this might not be popular, but but I think it's realistic that it's no longer Apple's responsibility, and it might never have been. But it's no longer Apple's responsibility to promote your app. You know, the the App Store is just huge. You know, back back in the early days of the web, uh, Yahoo had this directory where they were trying to make a directory of every website, basically, <laughs> and and it worked in like 1995 because the web was a really small place. Uh, eventually, though. That was abandoned, I think. It, it might still be running. I don't know. But I, I think it was abandoned um, because the web just got too big. And a directory paradigm was, was – it just – there was too much data, too much out there on the web. It just didn't fit. Um, and so that was pretty much abandoned in favor of search. And search has all sorts of challenges. It has ranking. Uh, it has spam issues. Um, but the, the directory paradigm did not scale. Uh, and on the web, you're on your own to get attention for your site. You're on your own to get traffic. You, you know, some of it will be merit-based if you can get good people to link to you, but you know, in general, you're on your own. And making something good enough is still on you anyway uh, to get that people to link to you. So I think the App Store has reached that point very clearly where discoverability is a word thrown around a lot with this. I don't think it's Apple's problem. I really don't. I think... They can have their editorial picks, which will cover some discoverability, but relative to the whole store, you know, that's, chances are you're not going to get featured that often to matter. You know, you might get featured once or twice if you have a good app. Um, Chances are you're not going to be featured every two weeks or anything. So, you know, discoverability through Apple's official editorial channels is going to help you occasionally, if ever. Everyday discoverability is not Apple's problem. It's your problem. it's you as a developer, you have to get your own attention, you have to get your own traffic, and whether you have to buy that traffic or whether you have to earn it or whether you have to luck into it if some you know influential person happens to use your app and you know link to it or talk about it or something that you know you might get that, but
0: you have to do your own marketing that's the right attitude from a developer's perspective because you want to be motivated to do the right things, right? I think that's the correct way for a developer to think about it, but in the grand scheme of things, it is Apple's problem in that. If they have a customer who buys an iOS device and they say, I would really like an application to keep track of my shopping list. And they search for shopping list on the app store because they don't know what else to do. Like they shop, they, they, the Google for shopping list app, or they find the app store, luckily and type shopping list into there and they they get search results. And at those search results are filled with tons and tons of crap that the person looking at those screens has no way to determine whether they're being lied to, whether these are all automated reviews, whether, you know, it it just feels lost. That's a bad experience for the customer. And they're like, I just want a shopping list. And there's, there's too many of them and I can't tell which is which. And I think that's that's a problem for Apple, because they want people to get their thing and be able to have a cool shopping list app. And surely there are many cool shopping list app. But the chances of them being anywhere near the top of the results for shopping lists in the App Store are slim, like so many people are talking about, you know, we all know the handful of really great Twitter client apps out there. If you search for Twitter or Twitter app or something like that in the App Store, all the apps that we know and love that we think should be at least on the first page of results or somewhere near the top are very often are buried. And you know, is that a problem for it's like, the app developer can't say Oh, Apple, it's your fault. I'm not selling my stuff because I'm buried. Well, you're right, the app developer has to do their own marketing and everything. But from Apple's perspective, they want everyone who buys an iOS device, who types in Twitter app to end up with a good one, like one that Apple agrees is good one that everyone agrees is good and not have to sort through tons and tons of crap. And I think that's a bad experience for Apple's customers, not not any, on any individual base, a developer deserves to be at the top or whatever. But just in terms of how satisfied is the user with that experience of typing in shopping list and finding a good shopping list, especially with no trials? And even if they had trials, there would just be another form of torture because you'd be like, download, trial, delete, download, trial, delete, download, trial, delete. We want some way to, like Casey was saying, to look at an application and to be able to tell, is this going to be good? Am I being scammed? Am I being fooled by reviews? Or can I not trust these people in these reviews? Right. And, you know, that's why I think
2: it's very important to draw a distinction here that, you know, in air quotes, discoverability, that word alone, that's not Apple's problem. Search is Apple's problem. And search ranking. And, you know, so making it so that if you search for shopping list in the app store, and, you know, making it so that mostly good slash popular apps show up on top, that's important. And their search engine sucks. I mean, I, I there's no better way to say it. App store search has always sucked. Um, so, you know that's that they they have tons of room for improvement and they really should be working on that. However, you're still mostly on your own. You know, assume they give, assume they make good search. You know, let's let's say they fix their search, which honestly is probably not happening anytime soon. Let, let's be realistic here. But uh, assume they actually did make really good search, uh, then and so it would be kind of Google like, which is like the most popular, generally, you know, the, the most like validly popular things would generally rank on top for, for any given terms.
0: Well, they can't use Google's thing, because Google's all based on when other people link to them. But the, the app store is this closed ecosystem. And the problem with the closed ecosystem of the app store in terms of searches, what is your signal for determining what's good or not, you can't use user activity as a signal, because users are not they're not like independent entities, like because if you, if you keyword spam, you will get boosted. If you spam people's rating dialog boxes, you will get boosted up in terms of, well, we don't know how that ranks. But there's lots of scummy things that you can do, and that's the only thing that affects the signals is user activity. So if you can convince tons of users to download your application and... They all give it one-star reviews, but you pay for five times more five-star reviews from just random people around the world. You'll be high-ranked, have all the signals that the app store says good, which is why their search algorithm puts this crap near the top. Because those people have, you know, sort of gamed the system to get near the top. And if that's the only input signal, then, like, you know, Apple is at the mercy of its own rule set. And every time it changes the rules, people, the scummy people game it again, which is why the top results for almost any category of app is filled with crap applications. And... Like, one solution is, is to open up that ecosystem like the web where, you know, it, uh, you have to do all the, the what do you call it? the SEO uh, battling stuff that Google does where they figure out when people make link farms and they combat that. It's just a constant stream of battling, but within a very narrowly defined app store with no other signal coming into this, you know, like, for example, a uh, social networking type signal of I'm friends with this person, therefore their opinions and ratings mean more to me than these random other people who I don't know, or some other source of signal. It's difficult for Apple to ever make a search that doesn't suck, not because they don't know what they're doing, but because any criteria that you choose to rank on will be gamed inside this little bubble. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was
2: always a problem. Like, my first job was enterprise search, and that was a big problem in enterprise search even, is, like, if your job as a search engine is to search through this company's intranet and they're, like tens of thousands or millions of documents they have on like file stores and stuff. There's no, there's no page rank information there. Like there's no helpful way to rank results uh,
0: of any kind of importance or, or popularity there. And if you do the, if you do the sort of incompetent, but not evil thing and you just say, well, I'll just track activity. And you can say, well, people searched for a vacation schedule or people search for the word vacation on the internet. And uh, you know, 80% of the people who search for vacation and clicked on this link. It must be really good. Well, all it means is that link probably came up near the top for whatever reason. And everybody clicks on it because it's near the top and everyone goes to it and is disappointed by it because it's like three years ago's vacation schedule. And as more people do that, it gets higher and higher in the rankings and just gets cemented as the number one match. And everybody who clicks on it says, no, this is two years ago's vacation schedule. Like that's that's an example of where you don't have any other input signal. So any errors that you have in your algorithm just become magnified by things that you didn't intend. And I totally See that in the app store. Oh, the top lists work exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, because if you go, you 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 know uh, what is it? There's some expression that I can't remember that someone in the chat room. Will, will... The richer get richer. That's not it, but it's like that. Anyway, that's good. We'll go with that. But yeah, you get on the top of the top list, and everyone sees you on the top list, and they buy you, which makes you higher in the top list. And you know, and th- when you talk about discoverability, I think what you're talking about is like, say I'm not on the top list. I'm unknown. I didn't scam my way to the top, and I don't have a popular application. How do, how do I break through? How do I get people to know that I exist? I believe I have a good application. That's this quote-unquote discoverability. And that's where marketing, you have to do your own marketing. You can't expect Apple to help you get in, get in the face of, you know, get on the top list. How do I break into those top results? Well, you could do all that scummy stuff that Apple is hopefully battling, or you have to do something else. It's not Apple's problem to figure out how do I go from zero into the top list. But it is Apple's problem to say, look at the ecosystem of apps. Within any search term or any category, there's a handful of applications that we think are great. And we can't editorially handpick, you know, every single category of app. We should have some kind of algorithm that will put up the applications that if you talk to anyone on the street would agree are good, you know, or popular or high quality or not pieces of crap.
2: And and that's also worth a bit of exploration too. And, and you know, this is this is hard for a lot of people to to even recognize as a possibility or to to judge or accept, but it's also possible that your app either isn't that good or isn't that compelling. You know, like it, what if what if no one's buying your app because they don't really want it or they don't really need it enough to justify the price to them? Nursing clock. Yeah, nursing clock. I mean, <laughs> like you know, like I have bug shot in the store now for a dollar, and it, it makes about two to four dollars a day. Uh, sometimes one, but usually two to four. Um, I don't do any promotion of it. In fact, mentioning it here is the first time I've even thought about it besides using it uh, in months and uh, you know that's that's a, a good example of like a, an everyday app you know it's it's paid it's only a dollar so it's it's paid but really cheap and there's no external promotion of it except a link on my a, a relatively buried link on my site that nobody ever clicks on and you know it does
1: poorly FastX is the same way I get excited if I have one sale in a day and I would say you know, every two or three days I do get a sale, and I've actually had a really good run of like three whole days where I've had one sale. But if I see more than one sale in a day, that's like, baby, let's go to dinner because daddy's rich, <laughs> you know. It, I, all kidding aside, it's, it's very much the same for me.
2: Right, but that's and that's that's a symptom, and, and you know, that and the bug shot sales, like that's a symptom of a lot of different conditions. Um, one of which, especially in my case, is like – and I, I, probably your case too – there's tons of competition. There's tons of other apps, many of them free, that do roughly the same thing. And this is an area like Apple could do very well to improve how we're able to communicate what our app does. Like there was a rumor um, a couple of weeks ago, they, they enabled a video uh, in one app's description. And and people were thinking, oh, what if they enabled video for all apps in the future? And, you know, and I, I wrote a post that, that comes with pluses and minuses. You know, the pluses are you could show off more of your app and it'd be easier to sell a paid app up front uh, if people could watch a video about it right there in the app store and, and you can kind of show off how, how good it is, uh, assuming it's good. But then the downside is you'd be expected to make a video, which is time-consuming and potentially expensive. <laughs> so so there's, you know, there's all sorts of, of pluses and minuses there. But you know, the fact is the app store is a very crowded place. And if, you're, if your app is selling very badly, especially if it's paid up front, I mean InstaPaper was not selling very well in its last year before I sold it. I mean it it didn't sell that well because I was it was a paid app in a crowded app store. Like people think I'm immune to all these effects, but I'm not. And and again, look at Bugshot. It's it's out there for a buck and no one buys it <laughs> because I'm not immune to this. Like popularity on the internet it only takes you so far. Um and, and so the the bigger problem here is not that that Apple has to improve discoverability, you know, in quotes, it's that the app store is really crowded. And maybe your app just isn't taking off in sales because it isn't that compelling for that many people, or there is the need for that kind of app, but someone else is doing it for free or or is, you know, spending more on advertising or, or is, you know, sending promo codes to all the people who run all the Mac blogs or something like that. Uh, And those are things you have to do to get noticed. And if your app is really great, even if you just do a little bit of promotion, if your app is really great, it will get noticed and it will spread.
0: Yeah, people will find it. Like that's how all these apps that I'm saying, well, we all know what the good Twitter apps are. We could probably name all of them right, even if we don't use them ourselves. And the reason we know is because people who write about applications, who review iOS applications, who are use a lot of iOS applications, who have popular technology blogs, uh, talk about their applications. If they ever in an interview, sometimes they ask, what's your favorite mail application? What's your favorite to do? like people talk about things and you know just through word of mouth and old fashioned, this is the you know sort of organic marketing. in addition to the regular marketing people doing advertising on podcasts, buying ads in magazines, giving promotion codes to everybody getting reviewed. if you actually make a good application that most people who review it give it you know four or five stars or a thumbs up or generally positive review, you will eventually, start to gain traction and the tragedy of that situation is i made an awesome app it's in a crowded market but like mine is a popular one it's it's people think it's interesting people think it's got a a new take on this genre or it's a great example of the form it has lots of features and it's high quality application everybody likes it and people go to the app store and search for that with a generic term because they can't remember your name even if they remember your name they can't find it and they just end up with tons of results of crap and that's where you're just being handicapped by the app store where you're like unless i have a direct link to my product with the exact itunes url if people search for me they are very likely to find a clone application an unrelated application or just generally be distracted by crappy other applications that are not what they're looking for even if i get them to go there to try to find my application that is terrible that's where you feel like apple is actively impairing what would otherwise be a uh Success for you. I have a great application. It's you know it's the new version of Tweetbot. Go find it, and people can't remember what it was. but They just search for Twitter, and Tweetbot is on page 17, and no one ever finds it. Right. I mean, and as I said, like you know, there's obviously there's a lot Apple can do there, but
2: if your app is barely selling, it is not because you don't have enough reviews. That's that's not the reason. And and let's say you get a bunch of reviews by putting in one of these stupid dialogues, and then your at your sales go up like you know 10 the next week or something. Um, how long is it going to last and, and and what else are you willing to do to keep that going and is that really worth it you know it the fact is like if your app is selling very badly chances are it's because it's not that necessary or not that compelling or not priced right or something like that and you need to change something it's it's not about like juicing the sales you have it's about either dropping your price figuring out some other way to make to make money you know make make a free you know do an app purchase
0: or or you know drop it to a buck and see if that helps something like that because that's what the market demands or find find your audience because like say you're trying to sell nursing clock and you've just been advertising on on uh mac tech websites well you know you got to find like where where are new mothers hanging out maybe uh, you know find in the old days you'd go to the usenet group and you'd post it there and you'd get more sales from one usenet group posting than here i'm crossing the streams here the usenet existing is a active thing at the same time as the app store anyway you have to find where your audience lives and advertise in that context what podcasts they listen to what websites do they visit maybe that's the problem maybe it's not that your app sucks maybe you just haven't found the audience or maybe there's an audience for people who want really complicated nursing clocks and yours is a simple one find the people who want simple nursing clock and you know it's it's the same product marketing thing as you know as any other type product Finding get, getting the right features at the right price and getting that message in front of the right people uh, but yeah, ra- rating applications are not the way to do that, uh, especially since, as, as Marco said, if there really is no hard and fast evidence that getting more ratings or higher – get, getting more ratings b- by bugging people is going to help move you up the rank in any significant way.
2: Well, people say it works. I, I have no evidence to support this. Like I, I tweeted the other day that like there was this one version of Instapaper that, that due to an App Store – um, publishing bug. This, this was when, when everything was being published with broken signatures and they couldn't launch. It would crash on launch for like a day, two years ago, whenever that was. Um, that version of Instapaper, once it was fixed and republished, was not reviewable. And it was in the store with no reviews for however long that was the, the latest version. I forget how long. I think it was at least a few weeks, maybe even longer, maybe even a couple of months. Uh, and it seemed to make no difference in what my average daily sales were. Like, none at all. And, yeah, sure, not every app is going to be, you know, just like this. There are, there are obviously different conditions around everything. But uh, that was just one data point. A lot of people have given other data points saying, like, oh, well, one release I had no reviews, and then and I, I didn't sell that many. And then the next release I had a bunch of reviews, and I sold a lot more. That could also be due to different factors. Like, it's it's hard to run controlled experiments <laughs> in the App Store. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's hard to really say whether it works definitively or not chances are it works a little bit. The question is whether it works enough to make it worth it to you to have that that quality reduction. And and that that depends on where your priorities lie.
0: I think the reason that the you know the the good app developers are resorting to the rating dialog boxes is as a way to combat the the crappy developers like if you go to some crappy application it will have – and you look at the little histogram. It will have a huge number of five-star readings that they scammed their way into <laughs> somehow, right? Yep. And then there will be a bunch of, like, one-star. It will be, like, U-shaped or whatever. If you make a really popular application that everybody loves – especially if it mostly plays to an audience that doesn't spend its time writing reviews or rating applications, what you'll see is a bunch of angry people who rate it one star because of backlash because they read about it on seven different websites and they tried it and they didn't like it. So like I read about it on these websites and everyone said it was great, but I don't think it's great. One star, one star, one star. And all the people who love your application are not going to rate it. And you're like, geez, this is not a a one-star application or a two-star application. I really think this is a four-star. And every place that's reviewed it and every person that's used it has said it's great. Why am I rating so bad? And if someone does a search with their crappy search system and sees, well, this thing has an average of 4.8 and this one has an average of 3.2, they're like, oh, that 3.2 one must suck. suck." In reality, the 4.8 one, that guy scammed all his reviews by paying people to rate it five stars or whatever. And no one rated it one star because no, there are no legitimate users of that application because no one would ever willingly download it or pay for it. And the application that is actually good just has the backslash negri backs back, uh... Am I saying it right Backlash. Now? Backlash. Backlash. There you go. is the word. Back- Backlash, negative reviews, and not enough positive ones. Maybe it has some positive ones, but not enough. And that will bring this developer to feel justified in saying, look, I worked hard on this application. It gets great reviews. Every magazine and website that reviews it. says it's good. I know I have a lot of users whose people are buying it. Please, can you go and rate my application? And I think this is what leads good applications to go bad good applications to throw in your face a dialog box that, that says please rate my application because they're fighting against that crap and that's another case where i think if apple did something about the crap in the app store these developers would feel less pressure and they would feel less justified in saying well i'm just asking my happy users of my application that's popular to rate things because if i don't ask them and and all the crap applications do ask them to or pay people to my application looks worse and people buy it less. And, again, that's that's the role that Apple plays in this is to, to get rid of the bad stuff.
1: Something you said earlier, John, kind of got me to thinking a little bit. And I was wondering, you know, you had said something about, like, the Facebook Facebookification, if that's even a word, which it isn't. It is now. It is now, of the App Store. And, you know, hey, 12 of your friends are using this app or whatever. It got me to thinking that, firstly – Imagine if on the app store you could see that you know x number of you, of your Facebook contacts or Twitter uh, followers or, or the people you're following on Twitter would probably be an even better metric. You know x number of those people have downloaded this app, and then separately, Y number of that same group actually have this app on their device. And that would be really cool, and you know that would be a tremendous amount of data. And yes, it's a little bit creepy, but if it was all you know anonymous, you could never find out who those people were. Maybe it would be okay.
0: Oh, that, that's when when I said the Facebookification or whatever, I was saying in a negative sense because that's a privacy thing where the, the Facebook Facebook does that. But like, I would not want the App Store to by default show even even just counts for because if you see an application like if you know. If you friend, like, two people, right, and you see the the number on, like, your guide to getting a divorce application go up by one, you you know that's one of your two friends, and you know which one is most... Like, totally, it can't be the default. It has to be totally opt-in. It can't be like Facebook. But that's the reason Facebook and all the other things do it by default is because they can harvest lots of good signal from these relationships and these activities. And I don't think Apple should do that, but there is a there is a there is a place between what Apple is doing and what Facebook does, uh, even if you just look at something like more like what Amazon does where amazon still has it's basically like the app store and their reviews where it's just a bunch of anonymous people, most of whom are angry, <laughs> writing things that may or may not be true all what does Amazon add one tiny extra thing that Amazon adds is the ability of other people to respond to review so someone will write a big angry review and say i got this thing home and it didn't work as advertised and it is supposed to do this and it said it did that and blah 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 just be able to have one person respond and say oh well you didn't see the whatever switch or you have to know that you have to hook it up to the whatever and then it will do the thing that you wanted or if you had read the manual you would have realized that you have to do this that and the other thing that's it all they've added is just another level of sort of anonymous random garbage. Even that is better than the app store where it's just one big long linear list and if you're lucky you can scroll through 20 pages and find some person correcting somebody who said something totally bogus and bad. That's one tiny step towards the direction of I see that 7 of my trusted friends have installed this and have launched it in the last day, which is totally creepy Facebooky type stuff.
1: It is creepy, but nevertheless, you I could f- I feel like there's a way in which it could be only slightly creepy, but very, very useful. And the actual point I was trying to drive at is what if this is what Topsy was for? Because Topsy's, my limited understanding of Topsy is that it was built for handling massive amounts of data. And to me, the only really massive amounts of data that Apple probably cares about, if not Twitter itself, is their retail stores, and the App Store. And and I'm not saying that Topsy necessarily is going to do this weird thing that I just concocted about who many, how many of your friends have this and how many of your friends have this on their devices, but I could easily see, it, see Topsy being used for either one of these things. And the other popular thing that a few listeners have written in about and I think makes sense is if iBeacons are sprinkled throughout Apple retail stores, perhaps aggregating that data and seeing, speaking of being creepy, where are people walking within an Apple store? Because at that point, with enough iBeacons, and if you have the app installed on your phone, presumably you would be able to maybe even know that much information.
0: Yeah, that's more like usage data. That's getting the Google creepy of like, you know, what if Apple just tracks every time you launch an application? And I think someone was suggesting to Marco or that you respond to on your blog, what if they tracked how long you use an application, which almost any metric you pick up can be gained as I think Marco pointed out with the, how long you use it. That's punishing applications to get you in and out quickly. Like the application that's efficient that you don't need to spend a long time in that application gets punished versus the one that like keeps you inside it in the application because it's cumbersome to use. Like any metric you pick is going to have some downsides, but there are, tons and tons of venues to get some other signal in here Uh, and you just have to be careful on how you pick them but i think you need some more input than what you have because if it's a closed ecosystem it's much easier to game than if you have lots of different kinds of input that are more difficult to control like uh, the app store reviewer you know the scummy people can pay people to leave our reviews and stuff they will have a much harder time they, they can't what they can't do is pay every single website that reviews ios applications to give them a good review that's much harder than just paying a bunch of people to give one star review so that signal that external signal is harder to control than the internal one anything that just exists inside the app store is going to be a lot easier to game than anything that involves all of us and the trick is to find some way to get useful signal from us in a way that's not creepy that doesn't track every single thing that we do that doesn't you know violate our privacy by showing everybody which applications we're downloading and using and when but just get that signal somehow I suppose Topsy couldn't be involved in looking at that, but it's like anytime Apple buys any company that, uh, you know, they're not going to tell us what they're going to do, and we just have to guess. And it's like, yeah, Topsy could do that. Like, you know, I, I guess the, the, that Prime Sense company, they could do that. They could have a sensor for their TV or for their next iPad or for their next iPhone or for their watch or for a ring they're going to design or for their <laughs> glasses or, you know, we don't know. We'll see. Yeah, well, well, the only one that, we were, that was easy was when they bought, what was that called, the, the, the Chomp? company or whatever that redid the store they they bought that company that they, they, bet they're going to use them to redid the store and as far as I know yeah they did use them to redid the store and uh and and nobody likes it but at least people we guessed right about what those people, what they were going to be doing with those that company when they bought them
2: you know i wouldn't have high hopes for apple doing meaningful things here i mean look at how they've improved the app store since its its introduction this is where i would paste in the crickets sound effect
0: well, they kind of it's they kind of shove things in in one direction and then it pops out someplace else and they shove it in over there and then another thing pops out. And so they're kind of doing stuff, but it's all just like equilibrium. You know, they shift in one direction, shift back in the other. There's never any like big, clean push into a whole new realm of win. It's always address whatever the most egregious problem is, but accidentally cause another one and then address that one and then cause another one and kind of staying in the middle. I mean, the the, the big problem with the App Store during this whole time is during the time that they've been working on trying to tweak it and make sure it doesn't get too far out of line, the volume has gone up like crazy and it's really difficult to do anything useful unless you get it exactly right when the volume is going up so fast because new kinds of problems are cropping up all the time. And a solution that would have been perfectly viable when it was small is now useless. And you need to come up with a new solution and you get that implemented and then your volumes go up again. Uh, And like Marco said, if eventually you reach web scale, then this whole idea of having a directory, like what are they going to do? They're like, they're reproducing the web you know (laughs) like it's a i guess amazon does the same thing like amazon amazon i assume will always have more products than the app store does uh and they manage to do better sort of searching and recommendations very rarely do i type something into amazon and not find the thing i want i can misspell it i can misremember what it's called as long as i'm misremembering in the same way that a bunch of other people are misremembering amazon seems to have do a good job of keeping track like just like google keeping track of uh, not the the first bad result that people click on, but the first result that actually leads to like a sale or lingering on a page or whatever they're doing over there at Amazon is another company. Apple should just uh, acquire or merge with, you know, someone please help them. Amazon. Well, I mean, who, who sells lots of things and makes them discoverable and has a reasonable system for buying stuff that people tend to like Amazon, right?
1: Well, hold on, though. But yeah, you're right about that. But you're also talking about physical goods and 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 audio and things like that. What I was just wondering is, how is Amazon's App Store for discovery and things of that nature?
0: I think the
2: problem is they don't have a lot of apps.
1: No one uses it. And nobody uses it. But I mean, even amongst the 12 people that use it, is it any better? It may not be.
2: We've had a number of comments in the chat room during the show that apparently the Google Play Store is is really good about reviews and rankings. And that makes sense, you know. If it's true, that makes sense because Google is really good at search and ranking. Like they they know how to do that well, and they prioritize
0: that. They are they are probably totally not above keeping track of when every application is launched on an Android phone and how long people spend <laughs> in it, and all all those stats that they get to track anonymously or however you know. And they're not trying to do it like, but that is. That's because that's what they do on the web. They gather every ounce of signal they can and, and on the web and try to block out every source of noise and gaming of the system they can for the entire web. And that's what the whole company was founded on. So, of course, they're going to focus those same tools on their web store, and of course they're going to do better. That, that reminds me of the uh, the funny replies to talking about that uh, the tweet I talked about last week about someone saying, why isn't anybody talking about this feature that didn't uh, ship in whatever? Uh, I was mostly talking about the why isn't anybody talking about an angle but a lot of people were like i thought it did ship i just thought it didn't work (laughs) (laughs) and like some people are doing that as a joke but some people were kind of like half serious and i have to admit to myself like a lots of features that apple ships you just mentioned back to my uh, back to my mac feature which also has worked sporadically for me if apple ships a feature that has anything to do with the net it's very difficult to tell whether the feature is missing entirely or just isn't working right yet because they hide all of like the nuts and bolts from you. So when Back to My Mac isn't working, if we had told you that Apple removed Back to My Mac from OS X two years ago versus, oh, no, it's always been in there, it just doesn't work. For as far as you're concerned, the experience is the same. You just It it doesn't seem to do what it's supposed to do, and maybe there's still a checkbox for it, but you know that, that's, that's how far Apple's reputation... If a tree
2: falls in the woods and it never works for
0: anybody... Yeah, that's how far Apple Apple's reputation has fallen so far that if any feature has anything to do with online, people just assume it's shit, but it didn't work.
2: I mean, I th- I think App Store search, you know, because you know because search is such a hard problem, and and you know you look at the difference between apparently Google does it very well, which is not a surprise, and Apple does it poorly, which is also not a surprise. I think this is the kind of problem that Apple would probably just never do that well. Like it's just it's just not in their in their DNA to really do search and management of this large data set and you know management of spam and gaming and everything else like it's just not what they do well and they've never ever shown an ability to do that kind of thing well nor really a priority to really put a lot of resources into it and and so i don't i would not expect the situation to change from their end
0: before we leave this topic there's one one more thing i wanted to briefly touch on which is the reason i held these rings in here these links in here they're linking to uh, your blog post about rating this app and then that other responses to, to saying that Apple, uh, you said that they can't ban the, uh, the rate this app dialog boxes and someone responded and then you responded back to them. This idea that, uh, th- this is basically the idea that one solution to this problem with rating dialog boxes is that Apple could just say you're not allowed to put up a dialog box that asks someone to rate your application. And you were saying you could make that rule but you can't enforce it and you were arguing back and forth. Right. Do you have anything more to add to that other than what you put in the blog post there? Not really.
2: I mean, it, a lot of people have suggested ways they could add a report button or something to... But it, it wouldn't actually work in practice. Like, if you if they added a report as of use or inappropriate or whatever button to every UI alert view, that obviously is very costly in other factors. And then people would just stop using UI alert views. You know, like, it's not that hard to write your own popover view like that looks and works like a dialogue box uh, and just attach it as a sub view of the window and you know what are they gonna do? Add a button in every UI view. Obviously they can't do that. So there's really no like any kind of like minor offense that lots of apps will do that will appear after app review time such as spam push notifications, which are also against the rules, but
0: they're very prevalent anyway. Yeah, I was going to say that that's the perfect example because those already are against the rules. You're not allowed to send people push notifications with advertisements in it, and yet many of us see push notifications which things with things in them that look a lot like advertisements.
2: Right, all the time, and it's for and this is what the po- the purpose of my post. Like, it's very similar to that problem, which is this thing already is against the rules. This you know spam push notifications. that's already against the rules, but it's really not enforced because unless the reviewer from app review gets this thing during like the five minutes they're spending with the app, unless they themselves get spammed and notice that it's against the rule, they're never going to catch it really. And once it's already in the wild after the fact, like these are such relatively minor rule violations. Like it'd be different. Like if your app passes app review and then you have it hard coded so that like two weeks later, uh, it it becomes malware somehow, that would get noticed and that would get shut down because that's like that's really bad. Uh, you, you know, you'd be kicked out of the developer program or whatever else. Fine, but for something like this, like a minor offense, like a push notification or rate this app dialog, those are not major enough PR problems, major enough offenses in the app store that if it happened after review time. Apple would make a big effort to crack down on that and eliminate that. Like, it's, it's just not important enough relative to everything else they have to do. So realistically speaking, it's very unlikely that Apple would ever ban these dialogues. And if they did, it's very unlikely it would
0: be enforced. So I, my position on this is that I, I mostly agree with the difficulty of enforcing this, although I also agree with the, you know, like, just because it's difficult doesn't mean it can't be done. But I think that if... If there's if this agreement within Apple that this is a, an experience they don't want people to have, that they're using their application and a dialog box pops up and asks you to rate applications, they should absolutely add it to the guidelines, just like the thing that says you're not supposed to get ads and push notifications because Apple's decided that getting advertisements and push notifications is not the experience they want on their phones. Enforceability, I think, should be not entirely separate but mostly separate from making the rules. I think the rule against advertising push notification is a good rule. It's kind of like the you know the the school zone speed limits which are pro- usually set like super low it's so that if if they wanted to they can give every single person in the school zone a ticket right it, it gives you it, it makes it so that like everybody is breaking the law and then you can you know you can pull anybody over uh but in in this case I think it's a reasonable speed limit if you just put in a rule that says you can't put up a rate me dialogue box you're right it's not like it's gonna turn to mail malware how are you gonna know that, that this thing really put up the dialogue box and uh, who was it that had that blog post explaining like a big system of a sort of a, a social engineered system where different people could report uh, violations and then if their accuracy of their reporting gives their reports a higher ranking, and you know there's lots of systems that are possible. But, yeah, that was the chuck one. Yeah, I wouldn't get too bogged down in the details of that. I would just say if this is an experience that Apple thinks you shouldn't have, put it in the guidelines. And maybe it's incredibly sporadically enforced, almost never enforced. The fact that it's there, and I think it's probably easier to enforce than the push notification one, because the push notification comes from, like, elsewhere. The Rate Me thing, I guess it could be triggered by an external server-based thing, but the code to put up that dialog has to be in your application somewhere. Uh, it's the type of thing where once it becomes a guideline, that alone could push it off into the crappy section of the App Store that I was talking about before. And all of the good developers of the well-known applications that we all know and love and use all the time would comply with the guideline because those people aren't willingly sending out push notifications for ads either because it's against the guidelines. And so even, you know, just putting in that guideline, even though it can't stop all the other crap apps from doing it, just putting it there at all would give a position that the quote unquote good guys in the app store uh, would follow along with, I think for the most part.
2: Well, but there's already like, I think everyone for the most part knows that it's kind of not okay, but most developers who have implemented it are probably implementing it because they've they've weighed that trade off in their head and they've been like well i know it's kind of annoying to some people and it's kind of not okay but everyone else is doing it and i need all the help i can get
0: because my sales suck and that same rationale i think would would still be there no, but that cost-benefit is going to be way different if it's against the rules. You would never knowingly put something up on the store that violated a guideline, especially if it was a high-profile guideline that came into being under circumstances like this, where now Apple releases a new guideline, not allowed to put up a rate meet. You would never put up an application that knowingly violate. Like, it's not even subtle. Like, if a dialogue pops up and says, please rate this application, you're in violation. None of the good developers would willingly violate because suddenly the cost-benefit is like, well, I'm being kind of annoying, but blah, 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 versus... My app is going to be rejected, or there's a chance my app is going to be rejected, or as soon as somebody sees this, I'm going to have all those backlash users saying, you need to get this off the store. It violates Europe, as I read about on this website. like, I think all the good guys would follow it. You certainly would, right? You was, I mean, you don't even put it up now, but like, it, it, think of a guideline that Apple could come up with that you would willingly flout because you think it gave you some minor increase in sales you wouldn't you would just say well apple has changed the rules and made like my application unviable and you'd go do something else you would not violate the rules and i think that that's the function the rules would serve not to eliminate the practice but really to further marginalize it and make it socially unacceptable to a degree not just socially unacceptable but like the, the smart developers who have a clue who don't plan on registering new apple ids for the apple developer program every two weeks to keep their business in business would say i can't you know i can't willingly violate this
1: you know, something I was thinking, and and I know we sh- probably shouldn't get into the details of how to implement that kind of rating or to enforce, I should say, that kind of rating. But it, what's stopping Apple uh, from, as part of the scan that they do for private APIs, what's stopping them from look from looking for rate an app as something that's passed into a UI alert view, or you know, just doing a string search within the with, within the compiled code for you know, rate an app only a couple words away from each other. And maybe they don't unilaterally reject upon finding that. But maybe that, you know, raises a warning to the reviewer saying, mm, you should probably take a look at this.
0: Yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of heuristics they could pull off. And again, that's totally not going to stop anybody who wants to do it, because you could have the text fed from a server, you can obfuscate it, you know, whatever. but. But, yeah, that, like because it, more so than push notifications because those come from, they come from entirely elsewhere, right? I think you'd have a fighting chance at an automated tool that might bring up a flag on this, you know? And, and even if the reaction to that was just that the reviewer would contact the developer and say, this thing doesn't have a dialog box that would pop up to say rate notification, does it? <laughs> and then they have to lie to you to get through. They have to say, oh, no, it doesn't have anything like that. And now you've got them on records, you know, telling them a lie. And, you know, it's, I, I think it, it would be helpful.
2: Alright, All right, I think we're good Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week Backblaze, Hover, and Audible And we will see you next week
0: Now the show is over
2: They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was Accidental Acc- it was
0: accidental. accidental and you can find the show notes at atp.fm and if you're into twitter you can follow them at c a
2: s e y l I S S. So that's Casey List. M A R C O. A R M. The anti-Marko Armen. S I R A C. U S A. Syracuse. It's accidental. I'm so upset I missed the joke. Somebody in the chat pointed out the much better joke of it's pronounced TH10. Yeah, that would have been a better joke. That's much better. I I wish I would have said that instead. But you didn't. There was one other additional thing I wanted to tack on to the rate this app thing. Uh, Might as well put it here. Um, (laughs) The way these dialogues work to kick you over to the App Store to review it, is they call special URLs that launch the App Store app to particular pages. And in iOS 6 and earlier, uh, it was possible to link directly to the review form for an app. And in 7, that was no longer possible. In 7, the, the best you can do is link to the app's page in the App Store. One thing Apple could do to, to combat this in a way that would actually be more effective than a policy... Is to make it stop working. Now, they can't make links to the App Store app stop working, but one thing somebody suggested uh, on Twitter somewhere—sorry, I forget who it was—is that what if they make it so that if the App Store is invoked by a URL from another app, don't allow the input of a reviewer rating. That's an interesting point.
0: Uh, I think that could be frustrating from a uh, a user's perspective. Because they're like, I can't read the application, and then it's like, well, did you get that window there from a link from another? And then they don't remember, or know what that means, and it's just—it it looks like their website is broken. I don't, I don't, I don't know if we could. That's that's like a, you know, the people who try to punish their dog for pooping, and they don't connect you yelling at the dog <laughs> with the poop he made five minutes ago.
2: One other thing they could do that that I thought of also is so they have, I believe this was added in iOS six. Uh, it's at least here in seven. Where they have this this ability to show uh, like a, a modal sheet for the app store, like for an app within your app, without kicking you over to the app store app. And so, what if they re- what if they remove the review input method just for those modal sheets, and then made it a policy that you were that if you were going to link to an app, whether it's yours or someone else's, if you're going to link to an app from your app from your app, you have to do it through one of those mobile sheets, and you can you are not allowed to kick over to the iTunes app. That would be an easier policy to enforce. You could even like you know check for those URLs or or even make those URLs stop working.
0: It'd be like institutionalizing the the idea of something that is triggered from an application that lets you rate the application. I don't know if that like I almost think that if that's the like it has to be it should be on a springboard level type thing. But no one would ever do that. Like I, don't, I in an application you can't have everything that's coming up. That's why a lot of people are talking about the idea of making a new website you know sort of gamifying a website where people could rate applications outside of the app store and outside of anything else but all you're doing is kind of recreating a crowdsourced review website and there are tons of websites that review ios apps it's some of it. i bet apple people thinking about this have the same thought as i do sometimes it's like what if apple just got entirely rid of ratings and reviews and everything and all they were was a directory of things that you could download and they had release notes and that was it and they used signal that they didn't show you to rank the applications that was probably equally mysterious to whatever they do now, but would actually work. And when I search for Twitter, I would see the the 10 best Twitter clients on the first page of results, and I wouldn't care about the sort order. You know what I mean? But then people want reviews, and people want all those other things, and Apple has signed up to do that, and now they're kind of stuck with it. Say they had never had reviews, but left it entirely to websites to review their stuff. Uh, That would be a different story, and maybe that would be an acceptable thing to do, but we would probably just be asking for them to do reviews. So I don't know. They're kind of stuck. It's like when, once you start censoring stuff, now you're on the hook for anything that comes through. Or once you start accepting ratings and reviews, now you're on the hook for making them not suck. And Apple has not done that yet.
1: Well, and they love, they and they want the control. I don't think they'd like that the official source of whether an app is good or bad is not controlled by them.
0: Well, you know, is this, this, the thing we didn't even talk about that every, like Everyone except for Apple agrees that it should be possible for the developer of application to leave a response to a review and for both parties involved in that process to update their thing. Because nothing is more frustrating as a developer having someone say, I got your to do application, but it doesn't let me defeat, delete items, one star. Let the reviewer write, actually does let you delete items, you have to swipe, or something like that, right? It doesn't mean that the developer is going to be correct or is official in any capacity, but just simple matter of like, because then, then, you know, you can edit your review and, you know, like the the people who leave that non casey review all the time are constantly editing it, right? You can edit your review so they could respond and say, actually, you can't swipe and like, you don't want to turn into like arguing back and forth. But if they just get, they both just have their one things, So there's one, one uh, review and one response from the developer. And the two of them could fight uh, continually updating their response and review if they want, although I think it's counterproductive. But a smart developer would leave an authoritative response to the problems that were, uh, you know, raised there. Uh, and that would be that. And I guess the fear there is you would have every single review having a contradictory response from the developer And that would be annoying to read, like a big giant argument. But they got to do something like that. They have to have some way to have other people be able to upvote and downvote them, or whatever. Like all roads lead back to Apple having to learn how to do social stuff, which they don't know how to do, as evidenced by Ping. (laughs) It's a bad situation for everybody. I think what
2: this boils down to is the need for reviews is to give to give more inputs when someone's browsing and they and they stumble upon your app. To give more signal as to whether the app is good and works the way it should, and if there's if there are more ways that Apple could could communicate that, and a trial would certainly help for paid apps, um, but I don't think we're going to get trials. Um, if there were other ways, if as I said earlier, videos, you know, let people upload videos, develop a response to comments or to, to reviews, that is another way for developers to communicate their quality level. Like if, if, if a developer responds to every negative review in a really good way, like in a helpful way to say, like, e- even if they're, even if the person reviews something negative and they're right, and the developer is like, you know, sorry, we're working on that for the next update. And, you know, or, and, you know, then you can diffuse all the invalid ones too say, oh, actually this feature exists here, or the buggy reporting is fixed in this version that's up now, you know, you can, that's still another venue for you to communicate more signal to, to browsers to tell them, like,
0: this is an app that's worth checking out or that's worth buying. As long as the developer doesn't lie in every single one of their responses, because then it becomes incumbent upon additional reviewers to say, don't believe any of the developer responses, they are entirely fabrications. You know, like I'm, what I'm thinking of now is uh, a formalized structured system for doing the equivalent of blurbs in the back of a book. Thrilling adventure, says the New York Times <laughs> or whatever. And uh, if you had a formalized structured system for that where you had to link back to the actual source... That's another way to pull an external signal. Mac, you know, Macworld gives it five mice, right? New York Times, a quote from the uh, New York Times review of this application says, blah, blah, blah. Link back to that article. Link back to the Macworld thing so that people can read it. See, this is a well-reviewed application. In fact, I can follow these links to confirm that they didn't make up these blurbs, and I can actually read the reviews. And again, it's the whole thing of, well, how are you going to police that, and what if the link goes away, and blah, blah, blah. But these are all things that have worked in other contexts to give people signal that... The thing they're looking at is this book popular do lots of people like this book you know and some of it is like oh i hear about it on on the news all the time or this is a very popular book or it's i hear it on uh monologues on a late night show or whatever how do how do we all know that the hunger games is an exciting thing oh they're making a movie of it or you know how do, all those other ways the signal get in unfortunately it, iowa's applications have not reached quite that level i guess Angry Birds kind of, maybe Words with Friends made it to that level. But that's how people hear about these things. Oh, that must be the application they like. But even in that case, you're like, oh, well, Words with Friends used to be good, but then Zynga screwed it all up, and now it's annoying to use, and how do you learn about that later? Uh, it's, it's not an easy problem. And, yeah, people are people are inscrutable little things, and I think Apple wishes they they weren't.